Hello and welcome to another episode of the Criminal Discourse Podcast. I'm Wendy. And I'm Trish. And today we have our third and final part of the series on Corey Edkins' disappearance and related cases. No case updates or other news for you today. No. And this one's a longer one. No case updates, but just want to thank you all for tuning in again. We're in 2024, people. This is awesome. And just so you know, Wendy and I realized we jumped the gun. Last episode was not our 150th. This is, in fact, our 150th episode. Celebrate twice. There we go. We'll just jump right into this. And uh, we know there are so many true crime podcasts out there to choose from and only so many hours in the day. And we want to say we truly appreciate you putting time aside to listen to us today. If you want to join the discourse, you can reach out to us on our website at criminaldiscoursepodcast.com or on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube at Criminal Dispod and Criminal Discourse Podcast. And one last thing. The views and opinions discussed on Criminal Discourse Podcast are just that, our views and opinions, and everyone is presumed innocent until convicted in a court of law, like Meryl. Like Meryl, and sometimes today we'll see some people are convicted in a court of law, and maybe people think they're innocent after all. So let's get into those cases today. But first... Let's review what we covered in parts one and two, a little refresher here. So two-year-old Corey Adkin disappeared from his New Columbia, Pennsylvania home in October 1986. Investigators believe that Corey may still be alive and left his home with someone he knew. Corey's mother, Debbie, she had some ex-boyfriends, friends, and other close contacts who were known burglars, arsonists, drug dealers, and rapists. Three of her siblings were convicted of drug theft and assault charges from about the mid-1980s through the early 1990s. One of Debbie's boyfriends was murdered in 1999, and his case is still unsolved. One of Debbie's friends, Henry Bush, was arrested in 2020 for lying about his relationship with Debbie when Corey disappeared. And actually, I believe he was arrested more recently. It was um, he was arrested for lying in 2020. Now, Corey's grandmother, Merle, was accused but acquitted of poisoning her first husband. Her second husband died in his home on Christmas Day. She was convicted in the poisoning death of her third husband in 2023. And Merle has been convicted of numerous financial crimes throughout her lifetime. And since her latest conviction, suspicion of her role in Corey's disappearance has only increased. Trish and I have been talking about this offline. We cannot determine what her role may be. We just know that it is very suspicious. And we keep focusing on those March 1980s threatening ransom phone calls to the local newspaper that were traced back to Merle's home. Now, people who have been interviewed in recent years about Corey's case say they were also asked about individuals connected to the 1986 murder of Ricky Wolf and the 1989 disappearance and presumed murder of Barbara Miller. Today, we'll discuss Ricky and Barbara's cases in depth and review the links between all three cases. In December 1986, so this is just two months after Corey Edkin went missing, 30-year-old Ricky Wolf was living alone in Mifflinburg, Pennsylvania. He and his wife, Connie, filed for divorce six months before this, after 12 years of marriage. 
They split custody of their two children, a 12-year-old daughter named Jennifer and a son named Timothy, who was turning eight on Thursday, December 11, 1986. Ricky called Connie that day at 5.20 p.m. before he left work to confirm that he was headed to Tim's birthday party. Next, Ricky called his grandmother, saying he would pick her up on the way. Ricky never showed up, and his family reported him missing by 10.30 p.m. that night. Do we know what time he got off work? He usually got off around 5.30, 5.15, so right about then. I think he was calling after he was done with his shift. Ricky's body was found at 8.30 a.m. the next morning at a boat launch ramp along the Susquehanna River. It was located off Route 405, and that was the road Ricky would have traveled from work to his grandmother's house. Several witnesses would recall seeing Ricky talking to an unidentified man along the highway around 5.30 p.m. the day before. Now, he was lying face down in a pool of blood a few feet away from his car. The car had a cracked windshield and bent front bumper. Ricky's eyeglasses were broken, his jacket torn, and he had a large gash across his forehead. Blood found around and inside Ricky's car all matched his blood type. It appeared to investigators that someone murdered Ricky and staged the scene to look like a car accident. Autopsy results confirmed that Ricky Wolf had been murdered sometime between 5.30 p.m. on December 11th and 3.30 a.m. December 12th. Ricky had suffered substantial trauma to the head, including a blow to the back of the head with a blunt object, which the forensic pathologist said was consistent with an object like a baseball bat. He didn't say that it was a baseball bat, just consistent with that. Ricky had also been choked and his internal neck fractures were the result of manual strangulation. His non-fatal injuries included a nose fracture, two black eyes, skull fractures, and a broken upper jaw, which required a severe impact. Throughout 1987, police were busy investigating a drug operation as well. This drug operation was shipping marijuana from Arizona into Sunbury, Pennsylvania. One witness's statements suggested a link between this drug activity and Ricky Wolf's murder. Police searched the home of Robert Hummel, a local dealer, and investigated all of his associates. The witness was Julie Williams. She was helping transport the drugs from a cartel in Arizona back to Pennsylvania and distribute them among local dealers, and that included Robert Hummel. Police interviewed and arrested Julie multiple times throughout the years on drug-related offenses, and her statements would play a key role in Ricky Wolf's murder investigation. In December 1987, a year after Ricky Wolf was killed, Northumberland County District Attorney Robert Sakovich requested the use of a special state police task force. The state police crime lab recovered several new pieces of evidence from Ricky's car, valuable information was obtained from numerous lie detector tests, and investigators were working on a psychological profile of Ricky's killer. By the second anniversary of Ricky's murder, Several items gathered from the scene were sent for DNA testing. Now, this was only the second time the county had ever conducted DNA testing. Remember, it's just 1987, and unfortunately, it didn't yield any useful results at the time. The case took a major leap forward on May 9, 1989, when six men were charged with Ricky Wolf's murder. Investigators believe that Ricky was, quote, killed because his assailants believed he owed a large sum of money to cocaine dealers and because he was a suspected government informer. Ricky was not an informant, but information collected from a regional drug trafficking ring the thing we were just talking about with Julie Williams, led them to connect those activities with Ricky's murder. From there, D.A. Sakovich said that investigators focused on, quote, who can we possibly break down to get some information? More than 300 people were interviewed, some several times. Their key witness, 
the one who broke down, was 22-year-old Robert Hummel of Sunbury. He was already facing drug-related charges and said he agreed to cooperate because the investigation was leading to him. Quote, I admit I took my part, but I did not commit this murder. Robert's cooperation earned him a plea deal in which his charges were reduced to third-degree murder with a maximum sentence of only 10 to 20 years and sentences for his other drug-related charges would be served concurrently. Robert implicated five other men in the murder, and the DA said his statements were corroborated by other witnesses and associates from his drug dealings. Now, Julie Williams is the only corroborating witness whose statement was specifically mentioned. She told police about a drug-related confrontation involving three men in her basement in 1986. Robert Hummel now implicated those men in Ricky Wolf's murder, and Julie's statement proved that they were associates at the time. But Julie says that her statement is wrong. The confrontation happened, but not until 1987 after Ricky was killed, and that she tried to correct this statement. She claims that the detective she spoke to kept screaming at her and threatening her with jail time if she didn't cooperate and go along with the original statement. Now, in his statements to police, Robert Hummel claimed that Scott Schaefer, William Hendricks and Thomas Yoder, all young local men, worked for him by collecting his drug-related debts. 32-year-old Mark Byers was one of Robert's customers, and when Mark showed up to purchase drugs with a friend, Ricky Wolf, Scott told Robert that Ricky was an informant. Not only should Robert not make the sale, but he should kill Ricky for being a snitch. On December 11, 1986, when Robert was attempting to collect about $4,000 from Mark, Mark told him that Ricky Wolf owed him money. So Mark agreed to bring Ricky to that boat launch area while Robert Hummel, Scott Schaefer, and William Hendricks went there to wait for him. When Mark arrived at the boat launch alone, Scott and William left to get Ricky themselves. They picked up Thomas Yoder on the way. Mark left alone and Robert waited back at the boat launch. Scott, William, and Thomas returned with Ricky about an hour later. They punched Ricky until he was face down in the dirt, and then they handcuffed him. Robert interrogated Ricky while Scott struck him several times. Ricky denied owing Mark money or being an informant, but Robert was not convinced, telling Ricky that he had one week to pay up, then giving the other men orders to, quote, rough him up a little bit. Robert says he went to his car and didn't witness whatever happened next. Everyone but Ricky returned within 15 or 20 minutes, and the four remaining men drove away. Robert would recall conversations after the murder in which Scott, William, and Thomas implicated themselves and each other in killing Ricky Wolf and staging the scene to look like a car accident. So Scott Schaefer, Mark Byers, Thomas Yoder, and William Hendricks were all charged with criminal homicide, kidnapping, robbery, aggravated assault, criminal conspiracy, and unlawful restraint. Most of them had already had run-ins with the police for DUIs and drug-related offenses. William would later claim that, like Robert Hummel, investigators offered him two different plea deals in exchange for testifying for the prosecution, but he turned those offers down. Northumberland County DA Robert Sakovich announced that he would seek the death penalty for all four of those men, given the brutal nature of the killing. 34-year-old Scott Wirtz of New Columbia, a friend of Mark Byers, was also charged with hindering apprehension or prosecution and criminal conspiracy for his role, even though Robert Hummel hadn't implicated him. Here's where Barbara Miller starts to come in. After news of the charges broke, 30-year-old Barbara Miller, a single mother living in Sunbury, made a phone call to Scott Schaefer's fiance. Now, there's different reports of whether she knew Scott was friends with him, family friends, 
there's some kind of connection that I was not able to find. But at any rate, she got Scott's answering machine and left a message stating that she knew who killed Ricky Wolf. Scott and his fiance reported this to investigators and provided police with the original tape, but it was lost. The evidence wasn't presented at the preliminary hearing the next month in June 1989. By then, a little over a month after those charges were filed, Robert Hummel's story had already changed. Now, Robert, again the one with the plea deal, admitted that he hit Ricky with nunchucks on the left side of his head, but then Scott Schaefer, Thomas Yoder, and William Hendricks, quote, just went off and ganged up on Ricky. Robert removed Ricky's handcuffs, noticing a mortal wound, and later tossed the handcuffs into the river as he drove away. Now, Robert also confessed to excessive alcohol, marijuana, and cocaine use throughout the day and during the murder. Stephen Marks of Sunbury, another drug-related associate of Robert Hummel's, provided testimony that contradicted Robert's statements. This is at the preliminary hearing. Stephen said Mark Byers owed him money, not Robert. Despite the discrepancies and changes in Robert's statement, the judge accepted his plea deal. The other five men pled not guilty and prepared to go to trial. On June 16, 1989, the same day that preliminary hearing began, Barbara Miller went to police after she received death threats in the mail. The typed letters accused Barbara of being a police narcotics informant. She was not. And the writer claimed to be a motorcycle gang member. Police were on high alert already due to defendant Thomas Yoder's connection to the Warlock's motorcycle gang. And they had already received threats, too, related to the preliminary hearing. According to Scott Schaefer, the one that she left the voicemail for, police knew by now that Barbara Miller had information about Ricky Wolf's murder, too. In late June, Barbara returned to police. She demanded her letters back. So this was like two weeks later. She insisted that they drop their investigation because she said everything was okay. And as far as I know, they dropped it. They didn't investigate it further, and they gave her everything back. Barbara gave those original letters to a friend for safekeeping, but she took those back a few days later, and those letters have never been recovered. And I don't know that they have copies of them either in evidence. The same day Barbara Miller recovered those letters from her friend is also the last day her 14-year-old son, Eddie, saw her alive. Barbara left their house for a friend's wedding in a vehicle driven by James Egan, who goes by Mike, and he has been described as both her estranged and live-in boyfriend at the time. Eddie said that his mother and Mike were having domestic problems and that they argued about the wedding because Mike wasn't invited and he didn't think Barbara should go without him. Barbara had previously filed, quote, domestic complaints against Mike after he had threatened to kill her. I don't know if that includes any kind of physical assault or just the verbal threats. Mike was convicted of theft and extortion in the early 1980s while he was a Sunbury police officer. He lost his job after that, and he had drug dealing charges in the early 1990s as well. Mike claimed that he last saw Barbara at 5 p.m. on Saturday, July 1st, 1989, when he dropped her off with her wedding gift at a parking lot in Milton. She planned to meet friends who were taking her to the event in Mifflinburg. Some reports say it was a wedding, others say a wedding reception, but she never made it. Later, Mike would say that he saw Barbara return home on July 2nd and leave with two men to attend a motorcycle event. Mike reported Barbara missing on July 5th. Were there friends planning to meet her at that parking lot to take her to the wedding reception? 
there is very little, I don't know how to explain it, that later on we get more details in the investigation as far as exactly where she was and what information police have, but there's never really any explanation about why we don't have confirmation from these people at the wedding and her friends. Did she show up? Did she not show up? For decades, it's left in question. Did she even ever show up to this wedding? It seemed like people were very nervous to give information at all after this last sighting. Now, at the time, police said there was no evidence of foul play or a crime. And that's astonishing to me. They're not mentioning Barbara's connection to Ricky Wolf's murder, the death threats that she reported two weeks before she disappeared, or that the last person that saw her alive had also threatened her life. Barbara's family found it hard to believe that she would leave all her possessions and her son behind. It wasn't until November 1989, so about four months later, that investigators considered Barbara Miller an involuntary missing person, and then they finally revealed that she had received threatening letters before she went missing. Investigators now theorized that she was either killed or fled to escape danger, and that her case, quote, may be linked to drug trafficking in the region. In late 1989, Northumberland County District Attorney Robert Sakovich pushed for an expedited single trial for all six men charged with Ricky Wolf's homicide. While the defendants asked for separate trials, a change of venue, and even dismissal of charges, claiming that Robert Hummel's statements weren't sufficient evidence to move to trial. Despite collecting numerous pieces of physical evidence, nothing conclusively connected any defendant to the crime scene. None of the fingerprints found in Ricky's car matched the defendants, and only three recovered hairs came back as similar to the defendants but that only meant they couldn't be excluded. It wasn't a match. Meanwhile, the governor of Pennsylvania praised investigators, quote, for working around the clock to solve the crime. For reference, that was Robert Casey Sr., the governor of Pennsylvania at the time. Afterward, several letters written to the local paper criticized the governor for not waiting until after the trial to commend investigators. One called the investigators, quote, incompetent, and claimed there was a, quote, lack of legitimate evidence. Another accused the DA of, quote, destroying families to make himself look good politically. William Hendricks, he was successful in getting a separate trial, but the trade-off was that his trial would be held first and sooner than planned, and his change of venue request was denied. So when his trial began in February 1990, DA Sakovich also made a surprise announcement he was no longer going to seek the death penalty because William didn't strike Ricky during the murder. Proceedings began with the sequestered jury taking a field trip to the crime scene after opening statements. William Hendricks testified that he didn't know Robert Hummel until June 1987, six months after the murder, and he didn't know Ricky Wolf at all. On the day of Ricky's murder, William said he went to work, went home afterward, and then went to his girlfriend's house for the night. When Robert Hummel took the stand, he admitted to altering his statement after receiving assurances about his plea deal. When he felt more certain that the DA wouldn't back out of the agreement, he provided more details. The defense pointed out that Robert was now on his fourth version of events. Robert also admitted that he had planned to kill Scott Schaefer and William Hendricks in 1987 because they tried to get drugs from a different dealer. This provides a little bit of motive for why he might be mentioning these two men beyond if they were involved in the crime or not. Robert's brother, Richard Hummel, testified that during a phone call from prison, Robert admitted that three of the men he implicated weren't involved in the murder. D.A. Sakovich argued that Robert's brother misinterpreted what he said. So Robert was using code names 
for the men. And he said it was just a misunderstanding. It was an emotional conversation. He acknowledged Robert's credibility issues and claimed that his statements included information only known to police and corroborated by other witnesses. A local jury of five men and seven women deliberated for nine hours before finding William Hendricks guilty of second-degree murder. William faced a sentence of life in prison. He promptly appealed the verdict, noting that there was no physical evidence linking him to Ricky Wolf's murder and highlighting the problems with Robert Hummel's statements. D.A. Sakovich said that, quote, there was no need for physical evidence to place the defendant at the scene of the crime because the key prosecution witness said he was there. Who changed his story four times? Yes. And that to me is the most stunning. I know it's just one little quote out of context, but that's scary to me. We don't need evidence. You were there. A drug dealer said you were. So you're going to prison for life. Sorry. The DA also said that the trial demonstrated how county officials are taking a serious, hardline approach to the area's growing drug problem. He promised, quote, we're going to pursue these people relentlessly. Less than a week later, Robert Hummel, William Hendricks, and Scott Schaefer were arraigned on felony drug charges related to the distribution ring that police have been investigating since 1987, the same case that led to charges in Ricky Wolf's murder. Now, next up is Mark Byers. He was also granted a separate trial for his role in Ricky's killing, this time with an outside jury. As Mark's trial began in April 1990, the three remaining defendants continued with their pretrial motions while also juggling those new drug-related charges and William Hendricks requested a new attorney to handle his appeal and latest charges. Once the Center County jury from Mark Byers' trial was selected and sequestered, his trial kicked off with another field trip to the crime scene. D.A. Sakovich once again announced that he would not seek the death penalty since Mark didn't strike Ricky Wolf. However, he claimed to have evidence that Mark was at the crime scene. He had blood on a recovered marijuana pipe that was the same type as Mark's blood, type A. That's it. Mark testified in his own defense, saying that he was at a bar during the murder until about midnight. Fellow defendant Scott Wirtz corroborated Mark's alibi. Other than his alibi... There was no one else that could corroborate his alibi? Like the bartender? Oh, there, yes, there were. And, but, and William Hendricks had that too. There were several other people who were able to corroborate things. But not a lot of paperwork, hard evidence, just eyewitnesses. Other than his alibi, the cornerstone of Mark's defense was the fact that Robert's testimony was the only evidence implicating him in Ricky's murder. Robert's phone records from the days leading up to and immediately following Ricky's murder show that he was in frequent contact with three associates. Their names were Stephen Marks, who we already talked about, Roy Harold, who we'll talk about again later, and Sean Bob, but not the men Robert had implicated, and Robert never called Mike Byers like he had claimed. The defense's arguments were enough to convince the outside jury of six men and six women to acquit. Within the month, separate trials were also granted for the remaining defendants. Scott Schaefer got an outside jury from Adams County, while Thomas Yoder was allowed a change of venue to Northampton County, both due to publicity surrounding the case. Scott Schaefer was the next defendant to go to trial in July 1990. Now, he had already passed eight lie detector tests, but lie detector results aren't allowed as expert testimony in the state of Pennsylvania. After a field trip to the crime scene, the sequestered Adams County jury heard from Stephen Marks, a former cocaine dealer and associate of Robert Hummel's, who had already provided testimony contradicting Robert's statements. Now, bear with me, listeners. Originally, Robert said that Mark Byers owed him money. 
and that Ricky Wolf owed Mark. So that's why Robert was going after Ricky. He wanted the money that Ricky owed Mark. Stephen testified that Mark owed him money, not Robert. So then Robert changed his version of events to say that he was confronting Mark because Stephen owed Robert the money. Then Stephen testified that he didn't owe Robert any money and Mark actually repaid him, Stephen, a few months later. So this whole, we needed to find Ricky because he owed Mark money and Mark owed me money was now gone. And did Mark, because originally Mark told Robert that Ricky owed him money, was that false? Like he never told him that? Essentially, yes. So now all of the testimony other than Robert's is Ricky had nothing to do with this. He didn't owe Mark any money. And Mark didn't even owe Robert money. He owed Stephen. Nobody owed Robert money. Now, Scott Schaefer testified saying he never met Ricky Wolf. He didn't know Robert Hummel until April 1987, and he only met William Hendricks in mid-1987, months after they allegedly murdered Ricky together. Scott said he stopped associating with Robert in the fall of 1987, and testimony from Robert's wife couldn't link Scott and Robert before 1987 either. There's really nothing showing that they were all together in 86. After Robert put a hit on Scott and William, Scott told his other contacts to stop dealing with Robert which cost Robert a lot of money. Again, Scott and William decided to go get drugs from somebody else. Robert didn't like this. Violence ensued. Scott said he was socializing at a bar in Sunbury the afternoon of December 11, 1986, and then he went Christmas shopping with his girlfriend before spending the night with her. Again, we have some corroboration for this. Robert Hummel's brother, once again, testified that Robert admitted to implicating innocent men. And one of Robert's fellow prison inmates testified that Robert confessed the same thing to him. Scott's defense attorney highlighted Robert's changing story and, again, the lack of physical evidence connecting Scott to the crime scene. After about eight hours of deliberation, the outside jury of seven men and five women returned a guilty verdict, convicting Scott of first-degree murder and related charges. And remember, he's facing the death penalty, too. Scott cried in the courtroom, saying, I'm innocent. I didn't kill Ricky Wolf. I didn't even know him. So the prosecutor did not take the death penalty off for him because he felt he was the one that did hit Ricky. Correct. Yeah. Now, as Scott Schaefer began working on his appeals, along with William Hendricks, Thomas Yoder, one of our final defendants, was busy filing his pretrial motions. Meanwhile, the actual final defendant, Scott Wirtz, filed a motion to dismiss the charges against him. He claimed there was no evidence that he committed a crime and he hadn't been brought to a trial within a year since that preliminary hearing. Remember, Scott Wirtz testified at Mark Byers' trial that he and Mark were together at a bar when Ricky Wolf was killed and Mark had already been acquitted. So why not Scott? The court agreed and Scott was cleared in September 1990. The fourth and final trial began in Northampton County in November 1990. The state laid out their case the same way starting with a jury field trip to the crime scene. Thomas Yoder's defense attorney pointed out that Robert Hummel had provided 11 different statements by now. When Robert was grilled on the stand about his numerous inconsistencies, his story changed even more. Now, Robert said that he didn't remember Mark Byers telling him that Ricky Wolf owed him money, and Robert admitted that it was, quote, hard to remember that day because of how much drugs and alcohol he consumed. A new forensic pathologist, now this is someone that the defense hired to review the autopsy report, not someone who did the autopsy. They concluded that Ricky Wolf died within eight hours of when his body was discovered. So that makes his earliest time of death closer to midnight, not 5.30 p.m. This expert witness also emphasized that blows and choking resulted in Ricky's death while the prosecution was focusing on a single fatal blow that they claimed Thomas Yoder delivered out of Robert Hummel's sight. 
Another witness named Stephen Sprinkle, a resident of Sunbury, I don't have much background on him, he came forward to testify that he knew parts of Robert Hummel's statements were inaccurate, and Stephen had another witness who could corroborate him. Now, he claimed to have gone to D.A. Sakovich back in 89 with that information, but the D.A.'s office denied that the call ever happened. The outside jury of eight women and four men took less than three hours to find Thomas Yoder not guilty based on lack of motive and evidence. And one juror said afterward, quote, there for a while, I was wondering what he was doing on trial. So of the five men that the DA charged, two, one for second degree, I believe, and the other one for first degree, and on the death row, Mm -hmm. are in prison. Mm -hmm. The other three, who are intertwined with all of them, were found not guilty or their charges were dropped. Yep. Bingo. Can they use the fact that these men were found not guilty and or charges dismissed to bolster their appeal to be like, listen, we were thrown in all together in this co-conspiracy and Lord, how they tried. You would think. (laughs) So unlike William Hendricks and Scott Schaefer, who were convicted, and like you said, William was facing life in prison. Scott was potentially facing the death penalty. Thomas Yoder couldn't, he didn't even provide an alibi and he was cleared. The local newspaper ran an editorial lamenting that Robert Hummel had gotten away with murder too. Remember, he was only going to be going in for 10 to 20 years on that plea deal. Several community members wrote to the paper questioning the different outcomes of each trial when the DA's case was the same every time. And like you said, out of the six men who were charged, only two were convicted. All the numerous appeals made by William Hendricks and Scott Schaefer throughout the early 1990s were denied. Their convictions were upheld and they were sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. So Scott Schaefer did not have to face the death penalty. Also, in the early 1990s, police analyzed bones found in a flower garden in Lithia Springs. Barbara Miller's ex-boyfriend Mike Egan had rented the property, and there is speculation that those bones could be Barbara's remains. They turned out to be cow bones, but it was the first time police named Mike Egan as a suspect. The property is searched again when a shower curtain found coming from a man-made hole that resembles a grave, but it proves to be another dead end. So major breaks in both cases came a decade later in 2002. In April, Robert Hummel was granted parole, and he recanted his statements. That put Scott Schaefer and William Hendricks in prison for life. This should come as no surprise, really. He claimed that the DA and two state police officers pressured him to give false information. Robert said that Roy Harold, now deceased, ordered Ricky Wolf's killing. Phone records confirmed that Robert and Roy were in close contact in the days surrounding Ricky's murder. Police had that information already. And Roy's name was mentioned by other witnesses who contradicted Robert's statements at trial. William Hendricks and Scott Schaefer filed new appeals. You would think this would be enough to get them out since Robert's statements were all that put them in jail in the first place, but they weren't released just yet. It would take a little bit more time. Why did Roy want Ricky dead? Do we know that? We don't know. So Mark owed Stephen money, right? Stephen Marks. And Roy Harold was kind of mentioned along with Stephen Marks as one of these people that Robert Hummel was talking to at the time. It did come out later that you know, Ricky Wolf was using marijuana and did purchase marijuana from some of these guys, but it was not, it was just casual. He wasn't dealing. He wasn't purchasing a lot of it. He wasn't into the cocaine. The only thing I could think is that this rumor that Ricky Wolf was a snitch, maybe that got on Roy's radar. And for some reason, one thing led to another, but because, because that didn't, that had to come out of somewhere, right? This, this idea that, right, that Ricky was an informant. Barbara Miller's unsolved cold case was reopened two months after Robert 
Hummel gets out of prison, recants his statements. A recently recovered photograph proved that Barbara attended the wedding or that wedding reception. And an item that she dropped at her house afterward proved she was home in the early morning hours of July 2nd, 1989. And again, this is when investigators say people are just really afraid to come forward and say for sure she was there or she wasn't there. Now they have the actual proof that she went and she came home. Investigators conducted more than 50 new interviews related to the death threats Barbara received in June 1989. And that led them to new names and new leads, including several witnesses who had also been threatened. In September, investigators searched abandoned mines where Barbara Miller's remains might be located, and several pieces of evidence were collected and sent to the state crime lab for DNA, blood, and comparative testing. None of those items proved to be valuable. Police also searched the home of a Lewisburg man, but found nothing of value there either, and they didn't give the name of who that was. In October, Barbara was declared dead as of July 2nd, 1989, and her case was reclassified as a homicide investigation. Then in August 2003, investigators announced significant advances in the case, and it was the first time a possible link between her case and Ricky Wolf's case were officially reported. A task force was organized to investigate them together. In April 2004, police received an anonymous piece of mail containing a tracking slip with William Hendricks' signature on it. Now, this proved that William was working during a time that contradicts Robert Hummel's statements, which, reminder, he already recanted. By July, William Hendricks and Scott Schaefer's sentences were vacated. They agreed to plead no contest to third-degree murder and conspiracy to commit kidnapping that reduced their sentences to 10 to 20 years plus 10 years probation. The new evidence would have likely warranted a new trial, and Robert Hummel was no longer a cooperative witness for the state. And it sounds like it was an agreement between the DA and the defense attorneys that we're not going to have a new trial. This is the best thing we can do for you. Scott was eventually granted parole in 2006 and William in 2007. Of course, Ricky Wolf's family was shocked and a little disappointed with the decision. And they worried that, okay, if these guys didn't do it, are we ever going to know what really happened to Ricky? Because the district attorney's stance on it was they did do it. And this probation and everything is still going to protect the community. But this is the practical thing we have to do because of the evidence involved. The new Northumberland County DA admitted, though, that some officers believe both men are innocent, but there's, quote, not enough evidence to clear them. That former DA Robert Sackovich, now a judge, still a judge today, insisted that investigators did their due diligence by corroborating all of Robert Hummel's statements at the time. Which statement? Which one of the 11? (laughs) The first one. And remember, it's from the only evidence we have of corroboration is Julie Williams, who was also a drug dealer and who claimed that the statements that she made were not accurate, that they were false and she tried to correct them and she wasn't allowed to. While he, quote, doesn't disagree with the New Deal, he never lost a minute of sleep over the convictions. Investigators on Barbara Miller's case claim they collected evidence that cleared William Hendricks and Scott Schaefer. Quote, the system failed these two men. That's what lead investigator Tim Miller would later say. He and his team believe that Barbara had information about Ricky Wolf's murder, but they don't necessarily think that the same people killed both Barbara and Ricky, just that they're connected. Investigators searched a water-filled strip mine for Barbara's remains in 2004, and while evidence was collected and sent for analysis, it doesn't appear that they found anything of value there either. In 2006, police returned to the home in Lithia Springs that Mike Egan had rented with a cadaver dog 
but there's no report of any evidence recovered there. In 2008, two more bones were found in a hole with a knife while repairing the Lithia Spring Homes Foundation, but they turned out to be cow's bones again. I don't know why there's so many cow bones. (laughs) Old dairy farm, maybe. Barbara Miller's unsolved cold case was reactivated in 2016, and in 2018, the state attorney general's office took it over. Investigators are focused on a duplex home in Milton where Mike Egan's sister, Kathy Reitenbach, lived with her boyfriend, Harry Catherman. These are two people we haven't mentioned yet. There's a lot of names going back and forth here. Now, Kathy and Harry rented the home from Samuel Rank, the Northumberland County judge who presided over many of the trials we've covered up to this point. That includes our friends, the Rovenolts from parts one and two. Judge Rank had also sentenced his own tenants, including Kathy, for dealing drugs from the home he was renting to them. Numerous tips led investigators to believe that Barbara's remains were entombed, quote, in little pieces in a concrete basement wall in that same home. Mike Egan did construction there in 1989 when the wall was likely installed. Cadaver dogs indicated human remains there, so the wall was removed and female bone fragments were recovered, but it appears there's not enough genetic material to match them to Barbara. It sounds like maybe they were kind of like put through a wood chipper sort of thing and they're too small, too deteriorated. Police believe that the threatening letters Barbara received came from someone close to her and that she was killed in her home after she returned from the wedding. They don't say why they believe this. They're keeping it close to the vest, but that's what they believe. And their primary suspect, although he vehemently denies it, is Mike Egan or someone connected with him. Some of Barbara Miller's family members feel they know exactly who killed her, but they are reluctant to publicly name that person. Scott Schaefer and William Hendricks, they're now in their late 50s. Those are the two men who were convicted in Ricky Wolf's murder. They want to be exonerated. According to Scott, quote, I have said from day one, we did not do this, and I have dedicated my life to proving that. Ricky Wolf's son, Tim Wolf, that's the one whose birthday party he was going to when he was killed, he believes in their innocence and publicly supports their efforts. Scott requested DNA tests on evidence in Ricky's case in 2019. 2020 and 2021, he appealed to the state superior court after being denied, insisting that advancements in DNA technology could prove others were at the crime scene and he wasn't. In his appeal, Scott also claimed that a baseball bat owned by Barbara Miller's son, Eddie, was the murder weapon. And remember, that's consistent with the autopsy results as well. Like Barbara's recorded voice message, Scott said that police had it in evidence but lost it. What is all the evidence the police lost? They lost the, the bat the, or the recording of Barbara saying, I know who killed Ricky. And Barbara's death threats that she received before she right. They didn't make copies of it and mm-hmm. they gave it back. But did they have a bat in evidence? This is something I have only heard Scott say, but he claimed it in the appeal. So the state superior court refused to hear Robert's appeal and the evidence remains untested. So there's a lot of DNA evidence of Ricky Wolf's case, and the state is not testing it. The court argued that Scott pleaded no contest. He doesn't claim innocence, and that means he can't make requests to prove his innocence. Investigators have confirmed that there is an overlap of players between Corey Edkin, Ricky Wolf, and Barbara Miller's cases, including family ties. There's at least one, quote, reported link between Debbie Mowry, that's Corey's mother, and an individual in the Barbara Miller case. Several people who have been interviewed about Corey Edkin's disappearance in recent years have also been asked about people involved in Ricky and Barbara's cases. 
Although police are keeping information on these open investigations, like we said, close to the vest, we know from our research that several members of Corey's family were involved in the same criminal activities we talked about in Ricky and Barbara's cases today. And they all occurred in the same regional area, same time period. They're all reading the same news articles that we read to research this case. Corey Adkins' cousin, Whitney Trump, started researching his case in 2017, saying, quote, I just don't want Corey to be forgotten. After researching and presenting his case, it's impossible for us to forget Corey either, and we hope that this three-part episode brings attention and a fresh perspective to these cases. As always, if you have any information regarding Corey Adkins' disappearance... Ricky Wolf's murder, Barbara Miller's murder, or any other serious crime, please contact Pennsylvania Crime Stoppers at 1-800-4PA-TIPS, or we have the link to that on our website. So, wow, that is a lot. It is all interconnected. But again, this is a very small area. It's not overly populated when you think of a bigger city. So in some ways, yeah, you know who you know, and everyone knows everyone. But still, it is very layered, as I said in the first episode. Yeah, it's not surprising to to find the family connections and things like that. The, cr- the criminal connections are the things that are surprising to see. Mm-hmm. And we didn't mention them in this episode. The, the first two parts, we talked a lot about these fires, this pattern of house fires that yes. kept happening. Oh, yeah. You had no fires in this one. No. <laughs> in conjunction with, you know, we know Merle committed, she was convicted on some insurance fraud, not related to the fires, but there's just a lot of mysterious things. It's all happening around the same time. I think especially Ricky Wolf being killed two months after Corey disappears. So Corey disappears in October. Merle allegedly attempts to poison her husband in November. And then Ricky is murdered in December. And then Barbara knows who kills Ricky. And then she is also killed. So that kind of glues them all together. And that's July, right? July of 1980, not till 89. Yeah. So she sits on the information or she doesn't sit on it. She just doesn't realize it until, I don't know, maybe she's afraid to go. Maybe she does sit on it. And it's seeing these other men being taken to prison that she knows is innocent that finally, you know, I don't care how scared I am. I have to tell the truth because these men are going to go to prison for something I know that they didn't do. And that was very brave of her. Mm hmm. I think also if there's so much about these cases, especially these this last episode, Ricky and Barbara's cases, that we just don't have the time to cover. They could have each been a two-parter episode unto themselves. It's all in the show notes, though. It's all in the resources. So even if we didn't talk about it, I pulled the resource. I have it for you organized to go check it out. If you're interested in learning more about these cases, all that information is on our website. Please go check it out. Right. I would highly recommend it (laughs) just to get everything straight. Thank you to uh, WNEP. Thank you to The Daily Item. Thank you to newspapers.com. And thank you, Dee. We haven't thanked Dee again. Oh, my gosh, Dee. Dee is the listener who suggested Corey Edkins' case in the first place, and she got a three-part episode out of it. There you go. So we invite you to join the discourse. Let us know your thoughts on today's case or any other case we've covered. And you can reach out to us on our contact page or by messaging us on social media. Reach out anytime. Let us know what you think. Let us know where you're from or if you have a case you'd like us to cover. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us on. Leave us a five-star review and tell a friend so they can join a discourse too. I know on Spotify and I believe on Apple Podcasts, you can hit those three little dots on the episode and it has a share button so you can send it directly to a friend. So if you have any information about this or any unsolved crime, please reach out to the authorities in your area or Pennsylvania Crime Stoppers. And as we say, If you see something, say something, know something, you might have that missing piece of the puzzle it takes to solve a crime. Barbara reached out 
we don't know what she knew. And I think, too, the other thing that we have to remember in this case is it's been almost 40. It's going on 40 years, mm-hmm. 30 plus years. Time has passed. The police seem confident that people know more than what they have shared. And by now, come on, a lot of these people are in their 50s, 60s. The people that Barbara Miller maybe was afraid of, a lot of them maybe in jail or dead. We don't know. Just there's family members out there who need some closure. They need closure. They want mm-hmm. nothing more than just to know what happened so that they can sleep easier at night. Yeah. Or a heck of a way to ring in the 150th episode, Wendy. And the new year. Happy and, new year, everybody. Yes, <laughs> happy new year. And before we go, remember, we want you to stay safe out there. We need to look out for one another and be kind to one another. So until next time, bye. bye.